0: Well, greetings in Christ's name. Happy New Year. Probably heard that a time or two in the last few days, I would guess. The uh, turning of the calendar page to a new year (coughs) always causes us, at least it does me, to reflect on the past and the future and what has happened and what will happen or what could happen and uh, to analyze where I might fit in that. It's also a time that um, people um, sometimes take the opportunity to um, make what they call New Year's resolutions. And um, I don't know what you think of when you think of a resolution. I, um, I thought I would uh, just look it up and, and see what the dictionary said. And so I looked on my online dictionary there. And it says a resolve is to make a definite and serious choice to do something. And it also gave me the information that it's in the top 1% of uh, words that have been looked up in the past week. And uh, so that tells me that there's a few people that are thinking about resolutions at this point in in their life. I also found it interesting that there was a top 10 list of resolutions that people make. And I'll just read them to you. I don't know if it helps. Maybe you've you've resolved to do some of these things. Um, Lose weight, spend less, stay fit, quit smoking, fall in love, become organized, enjoy life more, learn something exciting, help others find their dreams, or spend more time with family. Some of these seem noble. Some of them seem a little trite. But that's the top ten list. I also, as I was uh, thinking about it, I thought of people in the Bible that have uh, resolved, or, or had resolved, or have resolved to, uh, to do something. Maybe not a New Year's resolution, but they, they, they resolved. Probably right away in, in your mind and mine, um, Daniel comes to our minds. He was a man that purposed in his heart. He was resolved. Um, the Israelites, on a number of occasions, it said that they um, resolved that they would obey God. They, they made a, a vow. They, they swore they would do it, in fact. Um, they didn't follow through with that resolution very well. Both Jesus and Paul, it says at one point in both of their lives, they were resolved to go to Jerusalem. They had made up their mind. They were headed to Jerusalem. And in both instances, good friends of theirs tried to talk them out of that resolve. They said, you realize that when you go to Jerusalem, bad things are going to happen. In fact, Agabus... A prophet in Paul's day took Paul's mantle and it said he ran it. And he said, when you get to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you, Paul. And Paul said, don't talk about that. I am resolved to go to Jerusalem. I'll take life or death. It doesn't matter. I'm resolved. Well, when it comes to resolutions, 45% of people, or at least Americans, will make a resolution this year. And 29% of them won't make it past two weeks on that resolution, nearly a third. And over half of them won't make it six months, but there will be a few that do make it. So why do people make resolutions? They make resolutions because they're tired of things the way they are. They're tired of being fat, or they're tired of spending so much money. They're sick of smoking. Evidently, they can't find anything exciting enough, so there's, there's things more exciting out there that they're after. Some of those things are okay. They're ready for a change. But if they're ready for that change, why don't over half of them make it past six months? Well, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to guess that when it comes right down to it, most people do not care enough about their problem or whatever their resolve is to actually change it. It takes too much willpower and they just don't have the determination to carry on with their resolution past about January 15th. it gets old and they say, you know, I need that cigarette. Or I want that candy bar. Or you name it, whatever it is. They don't have what it takes to keep going. Well, there are spiritual resolutions that we are called to make. And... Um, I would like to uh, to look at this a little bit. Um, so, if you turn into the New Testament, after 400 years of not hearing from God in a very straightforward way, anyway, uh, John the Baptist bursts on the scene. We're going to turn to Matthew 3, but we're just going to read what um, what Matthew has to say here. Very familiar verses, I know. Um, so it says, In those days John the Baptist came, and he was preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And in verse 2 it says, And saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Flip one chapter back, and, uh, in, uh, or forward, to Matthew 4.17. And Jesus has the exact same words. He says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it's a new time. There's a calendar page, it has been flipped, it's a new era, and the kingdom of heaven is here. Something new is about to happen. And, he's, and John the Baptist and Jesus were both calling people to repentance, to, uh, to get ready for a change, or to at least offer a change. The word repent means to think differently, to reconsider, to feel compunction, and that word compunction means misgiving or doubt or guilt about your actions. So, in other words, he's actually calling people for a resolve. It's time to make a decision for something different. Jesus is basically saying, I want you to consider where you're at. I want want you to consider your trajectory in life. And I'm going to give you um, an opportunity for something new, something better, something different. And every person on the planet was given that opportunity. This kingdom kingdom that was being preached was... um, was there for anybody to consider? However, there's a caveat to joining this kingdom. and you know what it is? Well, we're going to read a few verses that tell us this. If you care to, you can turn to Luke 16:16. 16, 16, um, and we're going to read just a few verses here that, that give us that caveat. So uh, Luke 16:16 16, 16 goes <laughs> like this: "The law and the prophets were until John, okay And we, and we just talked about how there was a new era started about the time of John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Now that word presseth in the Greek means forces or crowds his way into. In other words, if you do make the decision to follow the kingdom way, it's not going to be a walk in the park. It's going to be a pressing. It's going to be a fitting in. Um, just barely. It's going to be work. In Matthew 11:11 11, 11, and 12, we have very similar verses. It goes like this. Verily I say unto you, this is Jesus talking, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, that, those two words, suffer, suffereth violence, is the exact same Greek word that we just talked about in Luke, where it's interpreted or translated, presseth. In other words, it's going to be work. It, it sounds even a little bit more violent in Matthew. I mean, when the, when you think about the violent, t- violent people taking something by force, I'm thinking about slinging swords. I'm thinking about blood. I'm thinking about hard, hard work. I'm thinking about being tired at the end of the day. 1 Timothy 6.12 says, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou art called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Fight the good fight of faith. Um, And we could read other verses. We're going to stop right there. But Jesus was very... um, He was very... um, He didn't mince words. He was very honest. He said, it's going to be work. Why does the kingdom require such work, such intense concentration? Well, I have, um, this is not at all an exhaustive list, but I just have four things here I'd like to share with you why it is that way. Number one, kingdom subjects are required to think differently about things than most people. In other words, if you choose to join the kingdom you must have a paradigm change of mind. Your, your paradigm of life must shift. Okay, so what do, you, what do I mean by paradigm shift? Well, here, here's what I mean. Uh, to give you an example, whenever um, the scientists way back when decided that the, the earth and the planets and the moon and all these things revolve around, in other words, the solar system revolves around the sun rather than the solar system revolving around the earth that was a paradigm shift. We had to start thinking differently about why things were the way they were. Totally think about things differently. When Lewis Pastor and others discovered the germ theory, it radically changed the way people thought about disease. Uh, suddenly it became important to, to, to wash your hands and, and to do these things. Um, George Washington, I don't know if you know this or not, but the man basically died because of bad medical practices. They believed in those days in bloodletting, and so poor old George, he's sick, so they just start slicing him, just letting his blood run. Well, we don't do that anymore because we've had a paradigm shift. Well, so what are some examples of um, paradigm shifts that we've had, that we have to have to be part of the kingdom? I'll just read a few verses and a few thoughts here for your consideration. These aren't new, but, but they are paradigm shifts. This one comes from Luke 15:15. 15, 15. This is Jesus talking. He said, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Okay, most people think that if it's highly esteemed among men, it's a good thing. Jesus said, You know, if something's highly esteemed among men, you better look out, because there's a very good chance that that's an abomination with God. How about this one? Take no thought for your life out of Matthew 6. Wait a minute. That's radically different from the world. The world wants to sell us insurance. It wants to give us 401Ks. It wants to do all these things, which maybe isn't all bad, but I almost wonder if I should say that because Jesus says, hey, don't take a lot of thought for your life. Probably one of the more radical ones is love your enemies. Come on, really? That's not the way it seems like it should be. But that's what Jesus says. Number two, there's many voices that try to convince us that there is an easier way. Think Satan's timeless lie. Yea, hath God said? Has he really said that? And we have people today, and you know that, that pick up the word of God and basically make it say what they jolly well want. And it's not what God said. Yea, hath God really said. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets. Peter says, prophets, False prophets shall teach damnable heresies, and many shall follow their pernicious ways. Number three, the way of salvation is hard. It is. Luke 13 has this verse. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? Jesus said unto them, strive, or in other words, struggle, fight, to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter and shall not be able. In other words, they're going to find they don't fit. They do not fit that straight gate. And they're going to struggle and strive and they will not be able to enter. And it says many will try that. Number four, there is a constant battle of rowing upstream against the tide of society. Jesus says in Matthew ten twenty-two, And ye shall be hated of all men, all men, all men, for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Constantly. There's this constant battle we have every day of pushing against what society would rather have us do. So I have a question. Are you and I ready to take up the challenge of Jesus' call to repent? Jesus certainly didn't sugarcoat it. Many resolutionists today will lose it in two weeks. Do we have more stamina than that? The Bible gives us a series of um, things that we have to work hard on to enter the kingdom. And we're going to look at one of those this morning. I would, I would call these spiritual resolutions that we must strive for. Anybody that's serious about the kingdom will have to do these things. It's not something you can drop on January 15th or June 23rd. You have to, you have to pull, this, pull this off if you're going to make it where you want to make it. So turn with me to Philippians 3. This is where we're going to spend our time for the rest of the, uh, rest of the time here. Very, very familiar verses. And I am not going to take the time to read all these verses, but um, Paul here is writing for the church in Philippi. And uh, he's talking about, he tells them in verse 1, to rejoice in the Lord. Verse 2, to beware of these dogs and evil workers and the, the people of the concision. And then he lists about, um, for the next 3, 4, 5 verses, he gives all these good things that he has done, Uh, in his lifetime prior to his conversion that he could stack up as great things. But he says, I count them lost for Christ, in verse 7. And I'm going to pick up in verse 8. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and may be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, That that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of, Christ, of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal this, even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be ye followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we have our Savior, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vow body, that it may be fashioned like unto his precious, his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. And I'm going to read the next verse in chapter four. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown. So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Okay, so there's a word here in verse 14 press that word press shows up again this time it's a slightly different word in greek but it means virtually the same thing it means to press forward to pursue actually most times in the new testament if you would look it up this word this word is translated persecute so most times actually most times i would say in the new testament the word is translated or or yes translated persecute so, in Matthew 5.11, where it says, Blessed are ye when men shall revalue and persecute you. That's the same word that, that is translated press here in, um, in this particular passage. So, what that tells me is, is this pressing is hard work indeed. I mean, it is a pursuing like no other. It is uh, perhaps even a pursuing to the point of death, even. There's a number of things in the New Testament that we're called to pursue that this exact word is used that we're supposed to pursue in that kind of manner. I'm going to read them to you. We're not going to look at them all this morning, but we're going to look at one. So we're told to pursue hospitality, righteousness, peace, holiness, faith, that which is good, and charity. And I think I have them all, but I may not. At least those many things. We're supposed to pursue like crazy, we might say. All right, so every cause needs a reason, and the Christian calling is no different, and we're called here to pursue, to press toward the mark for the prize of this high calling. So I want to look just a a bit at uh, defining this calling, Um, just a number of things we know from other scriptures that tell us what this calling is all about. So it's a calling. This calling that we are called to is something that Hebrews 3.1 tells us is shared by holy brothers. That verse goes like this. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Okay, so it's not just one of us that are called. We're all called. And if we've taken up that calling, you have the calling just the same as I. Now how that fleshes out in the way we serve God, how that calling actually uh, plays out in you and my life may differ but the calling is the same it's interesting to me that um, in Hebrews 3 1, 1 Timothy six twelve, our calling is called a profession um, when you think of a professional you think of somebody that knows what he's doing actually he's had a bit of education in this thing and he's been around the block a time or two and he's an authority on it um, I like that word profession um, in Ephesians 4:1, our calling is called a, a vocation. Uh, a lot the same. Uh, I think of something that consumes our time, uh, something that we never quite attain completely. There's always more to learn. There's always continuing education. That's our calling. It's a call to suffering that glorifies Christ. If you would turn to First Corinthians 1, or, I'm sorry, First Thessalonians 1, you would see this. In verse 4, in Thessalonians 1, it says so that we ourselves glory in you and the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. And verse 11 goes like this, Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasures of his goodness and the work of faith with power. What was the calling he was was, um, pointing them back to? It was the calling of persecution and tribulation. In 2 Peter 1-2, number 4, defining the high calling, it's something that requires effort to maintain. Peter puts it like this, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. So what are some things that can detract from pressing towards this mark? And we're going to pull these out of this chapter we just read. So the first thing that's very um, obvious is in verse 2 false doctrine you follow false doctrine uh, that's not the calling you're going to miss the mark you are going to uh, end up in a place that you never intended to end up I find it also interesting that the word mark in uh, verse 14 pressing toward the mark the word mark has a, has a connotation of being a skeptic Okay, skeptical Apprehensive, peering cautiously about. Okay, so in other words, we're called here to beware of these dogs, beware of these evil workers. In other words, make sure, make good ensure that you it's right okay to be it's okay sometimes to be a skeptic, to look at things very skeptically and say, really? Is this the way that is? Does this line up with God's word? And in the Philippians day, of course, we know it was the Judaizers. They said yeah, we like this Christian thing, but you know we really like the law of Moses too. And we'd like to marry those two. We'd like to have both. And Paul does not mince for words here. He says, these people are dogs. They don't have anything to do with them. And I don't think we understand the connotation that that, that carried. Um, the Jews were used to calling the Gentiles dogs. Here, Paul says, you're the dogs. How willing are you and I to consider the possibility that we are vulnerable to false doctrine? How should you and I relate to people that have fallen to false doctrine and, and believe that? That's another that's another very serious thing. Okay, another thing that detracts from pressing toward the mark. Um, verse 4, confidence in the flesh. I've lived a good life. I had a guy tell me that just a few weeks ago. He said, I made my peace with God. I live a good life. I would have loved to, uh, if, I had, if I would have had the time and it, I probably should have taken the time to discuss that a bit further with him. But that's people's um, thats people's thoughts these days. And it can be you and I's um, thoughts, too, if we're not careful. I'm a good man. Um, I have confidence in my flesh. Um, you know, our lines have fallen to us in pleasant places. We have a goodly heritage. I don't despise that, and I'm happy for that. But it is a real threat to us to put confidence in that goodly heritage and it's, it's a good thing to remind ourselves that while we do have an advantage um, I think it, was, it is an advantage to us to have a goodly heritage it does not gain brownie points with God never forget that um, I like the illustration I heard once that you know the person that is just out there never was raised in a Christian family and is just steeped in sin just dead in sin It's something like a person being just drowned in an ocean. I mean, just surrounded by sin. Just drowned. But do you realize you can drown in a bathtub too? You can drown in an inch of water. You can do that. All of us have sinned. It doesn't matter if it's an inch or an ocean full. So another thing that detracts from pressing toward the mark is being satisfied with my current relation with Christ. Verse 12 would bring that out. You know, we're taught in the business world, in the sports world, that we should never be satisfied with status quo. Um, and that's very easy for us Christians to be to become satisfied that, um, you know, we've attained about as much as we're going to attain. There's not much more we can gain. Or to buy into the idea that, you know, there's certain vices that I have that I cannot break. I, I, I have to just... Accept it because there's no way I'm going to break it. That's a lie. That's a lie. If, if you, by the power of God, wish to break the vice of sin, you can. You can do that. Never forget that. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. But I think it's a lie that we cannot break certain vices. We certainly can. You know, from 1915 to 1954... There was no man on the earth that ran a mile in less than four minutes. And it was thought it couldn't be done. But in May 6, 1954, a man did it. He ran it in less than four minutes. Fifty-four days later, that record was broke. And today, the record stands at three minutes and 43 seconds. And there's people that are trying to break that one. Never think you can't attain more. Now I, I gotta say, they probably they're getting to the end of that mouth thing. I'm guessing that's gonna be hard to break. But there's people that are gonna try to do it to do it in three and forty-two. I'm sure of it. In the 15th century, Spain had an inscription on its coinage that said this: "Nothing more." In other words, they were they were the a world power, and they had con- they had conquered a lot of territory, and they said their, their coinage actually had the wording. Nothing more. What happens in 1492? Columbus discovers America. So they had to change their, their, their inscription on their coinage to more beyond. People, we have to be people that look for more beyond. All right, another thing that detracts from pressing toward the mark. The inability to forget those things that are behind. Paul had things he had to forget about. Do you think he ever regretted that time he stood there by Stephen as he was being stoned? I bet he did. I bet he thought about that more than once. They he said, I have to forget that. If I'm going to, to gain ground, I must forget that. When we become distracted with things behind, we cannot properly concentrate on the things that are before. That's one of the reasons Jesus said, when you put your hand to the plow, don't look back. You can't do that. You can't make a straight furrow. You can't get the plowing done. Don't look back. I like this. Uh, I heard this a few uh, months ago, a quote, and I like it a lot. There's two days that God never intended for you and I to live in. Yesterday and tomorrow. Live today. Work on it today. Another thing that detracts. A love for the flesh and satisfying its cravings. And we get this from verse 18 and 19. Carnality. And he lists a few things. People that he right away says their end is destruction. And he says their God is their belly, their glory is in their shame, and they mind earthly things. When I read about Our God being, or some people's gods being their bellies, hopefully not ours. My mind always goes to Numbers 11 when the Israelites, it said the rabble, cried for more than manna. They were sick of manna. And you know the story. God said, all right, there's going to be quail. There's going to be some quail for you folks. And Moses actually argued with God. He said, I don't see how you're going to give meat to all these people. I don't think you understand God. God said, there's going to be quail. And there was quail. And people went out and gathered that quail and ate like a bunch of gluttons. Read the account sometime. And that angered God. It said the Lord God was angered and he smote those people while they were eating the quail. There was just something about that gluttony that God couldn't take. Their, their God was their belly. Let's face it. And, and God smote those people for that. We don't have time to do a study on it, but gluttony is certainly listed as a very serious sin in the Bible. Actually, in Numbers 11.34, in that particular account, when they buried the people in that particular place, they said they called the place, uh, I don't know if I can say the word, but look it up. I'm not going to bother. It starts with a K and it's very long. But it means the grave of lust. That's what it means. The grave of lust. That's where they buried the people. How do you and I know when, when our bellies have become our God? How can, how can we know that? Well, I'm not sure how we can positively know that. But I did just a little bit of research into how the church historically viewed gluttony. And I found some interesting things, and I'm going to take the time just to read a couple of them to you. Um There was a pope by the name of Gregory the Great back in, he served from 590 to 604. And and, and please hear me here, I don't often quote popes, okay? I have some serious issues with a lot of popes. But Haley calls him one of the purest and best popes ever. He said if all popes would have been like this pope, the world would have a completely different estimation of the papacy. So the man maybe was quite a few notches above most popes. But anyway, this gives you an idea of how even nominal Christianity at that point in time viewed gluttony, or at least Gregory the Great did. So he wrote on intemperance on many things, but one of the things he hit was eating. And here's his here's five things that he came up with, and I don't necessarily agree or disagree. This is Gregory the Great. Okay? This is what he said. He said, if you want to practice temperance and eating, here's five things you can do. Do not Eat between meals to satisfy your taste buds. Okay? Do not seek delicacies or better quality of food to, sodis- to satisfy the vile sense of taste. Do not seek after sauces and seasonings for the enjoyment of the taste buds. Do not exceed the necessary amount of food. Do not take food with too much eagerness, even proper amounts. Well, that's, that was Gregory the Great's uh, take on things. And I'm not going to comment on that. That was his uh, his view of it. Um, What I found even more interesting was uh, back in about 1527, very, very soon after the inception of the Swiss Brethren, right around the time of the printing and the circulation of the Schleitheim Confession of Faith, which we're all familiar with, there was something else that was circulated among the Swiss churches at that time, that we often don't talk about. And it's somewhat, it could be called the, the first discipline, I guess. You could call it that. But it was called the congregational order. And it was to be circulated in the churches. And this is what they expected their congregations to live up to. Very succinct, very brief. But there were seven points in this, in this congregational order. And I would, it would be a very interesting exercise to have each of you list what you feel would be the top seven things our churches could work on today that would make them better suited to serve God. But these, are the, these are the top seven, I guess, concerns or admonitions of that time. And I'm going to read them to you because I thought they were extremely interesting. So number one, brothers and sisters are required to meet three or four times a week for mutual exhortation. That was number one. When they read the scripture together, the one with the best understanding should take responsibility in explaining the meaning of the text. And the psalms should be read at home. Number three, proper conduct is expected at worship and in the context of the world. Number four, when a brother has erred, he should be admonished according to the command of Christ as everyone is obliged to do out of love. Number five, Christians should hold all things in common. That's interesting. That's not Hutterites here. That was, that was way back when the Swiss brethren uh, held to that. Interesting. Number six, gluttony is to be avoided. Interesting. And number seven, the Lord's Supper should be held whenever the community is together for the purposes of proclamation and remembering how Christ gave himself for us that we might be willing to give of ourselves for the sake of Christ and others. Now, they, uh, I found a little bit more detail in what they had to say about gluttony, and I'm going to read this to you very brief. Now here's what they said. All gluttony shall be avoided among the brothers who are gathered in the congregation. Serve a soup or a minimum of vegetables and meat, for eating and drinking are not of the kingdom of heaven. It's just, I just find this interesting. Um... You know, would you put gluttony on your top seven list if, if you were to um, write your top seven down? They did. I find that interesting. Well, we could, uh, we could go on and on on that, and I don't intend to do that. But uh, those things I did find quite interesting. Um, there is a, there is a I, I almost find in this Pope that I quoted, I almost find asceticism coming through a little bit. It almost seems like if it tastes good, it isn't right. I'm not calling anybody to asceticism this morning. Neither am I promoting carnality. What I would hold out to you is what I think Paul is calling us to, and that is holiness. Holiness does what is right and joyfully accepts the pleasure or the pain that accompanies the act. I, I think that sums up holiness. Let's move on. Glory in their shame. Other things that uh, detract. I'm not going to take a, a lot of time on that. You understand that. Uh, not feeling bad about um, things that are wrong. Practicing that and not feeling one bit bad about it. Proverbs talks about a whore that will commit whoredom and get up, wipe her lips and say, I've done nothing wrong. That's glory in your shame. People who mind earthly things. And again, this is a sermon on itself, and I won't preach one. But I'm going to read a few verses to you. Hebrews 12:1. let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race. Colossians 3, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Second Peter 3 says this, seeing then that all these things must be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And it's pretty clear from Jesus' words in Luke 21, he says this, he says, And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life, so that that day come upon you unawares. Let's move on. What are some things in this chapter that will aid us in pressing toward the mark? Verse 1, Rejoice in the Lord. And I it what Darren shared this morning, and Cleon seconded it. I'm going to throw my hat in that ring, too. It's easy to see the negative side of life. It is. Um, we, we seem to be a little bit wired that way. If you know, I'm amazed at my, um, in my, in my temperature tolerance. I like my temperature zeroed in about 68. That's where I'm comfortable. If it gets down to 60, I'm whining. If it gets up to 80, I'm whining. I want it at 68. That's where I want it. We're just hard to, it's just hard hard for us to see the positive. You know, we tend to complain. Some to a greater degree than others. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Praise the Lord. You know, it's zero out there this morning. We've got a warm building to be in. Let's look at the positive side of things. What a blessing. And everything give thanks. The world's bad. Let's show them a better way. Let's not be the whiners of the world. Another thing that can aid us in pressing for the mark, learn to love the repetition of the gospel and the impact it can have on your life. Paul says here in verse 1 again, he says, I'm writing the same thing to you. It's not grievous to me, and it's actually safe for you. I don't know how it is for you when you get up to have a topic, but when I get up to have a topic, I tend to like to share something new. And the problem is, I run out of new things. There isn't a lot of new things. I mean, the, the old, old story is the old, old story. And the way to get there and to get that, reach that mark is the same way as it was 150 years ago. It's the same thing. Learn to love that. It was the ungodly Athenians of Acts 17 that spent their time in nothing else but to hear or tell some new thing. Paul says, be content with the old. Another thing, worship God in the Spirit. How do I know when I worship God in the Spirit, as verse 3 calls us to? How do you measure a subjective experience with objective criterion? How's that measured? Well, I'll leave it with you. God's Spirit can speak to you. You know when you worship God in the Spirit. Um, Know this, that God will be a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. A fourth thing in verse 10. Learn to know Christ. Are you learning to know Christ? How do you learn to know somebody? Well, if we know somebody, we'll recognize the person. We'll call them by name. We're acquainted with their activities. We love to spend time with their family. We love to converse with them. Do you know Christ? Have you participated in the power of his resurrection? In his suffering? Are you willing to die? with him and for him. These are things that are about knowing Christ. Fifth thing, in verse 15 to 17, practice harmony and deference in the Christian brotherhood. Now these verses I read over and read over and read over to try to figure out exactly what Paul was saying in these three verses. So he starts out in verse 15. He says, Let as many, therefore, as be perfect. Okay. When he says perfect, what he's actually saying in our language is mature. So he's talking to the mature people there at Philippi, and he's talking to the mature people at Prairie Church. So listen up. If you're mature, listen. This is to you. If you're mature, have the same attitude that Paul had. And that is, there's more out there. There's more beyond. You haven't attained yet. Keep pressing. Keep running. If you're mature... Don't think about your maturity. Think about how much more there is to mature in. And he says, if someone does think they're mature and thinks they have attained, he said, I'm satisfied to let God show his error to him. That's what he says. He said, if anybody is otherwise minded, God will reveal that to them. I'm satisfied to let God do that revelation. I don't need to convince the person of that. In verse 16, he says, nevertheless... Whereunto we have attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. In other words, to the degree that we have collectively attained, the things that we've attained collectively, let's not lose those things. Let's not be the people that erode that. Let's, let's, let's stake that claim and hold it collectively. And to the perfect, I believe he's saying, be patient. Be patient with the people that haven't attained to where you have, you have attained. And uh, I really believe that the admonition of Hebrews 12.12 comes in here very handily. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees encourage. In other words, let's be a brotherhood that encourages that person that has the feeble knees and the hands that are hanging down. Um, Let's strive together for one goal. The same role and the same thing. Number six. Find a Christian mentor and follow that person. Um, That's what verse 17 tells me. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk like me and follow them too. The encouragement of a godly mentor is priceless, inspiring, and we can learn from others' mistakes. I know the old adage is that we can't, but we can. Number seven, be involved in the heavenly conversation. All right. Verse 20, for our conversation is in heaven. Now, there's something I like about this word conversation. In the Greek, it is actually the word that we get our word politics. Be involved in heavenly politics. Now, people that are involved in politics today, heavily in earthly politics, they're all about it. I mean, if you're a Republican, you're all about being a Republican. If you're a Democrat, you're all about that. And you know those kind of people. You've met them. That's all they can talk about. You know, if I owned a company that was guaranteed bulletproof, absolutely no holes, it was in a country that was absolutely invincible, and I guaranteed that the investment stock would always go up, would you invest in that company? Of course you would. That's exactly the company that we can invest in we have that opportunity to invest in heavenly politics. Put your money there. Put your time there. When the hymns of the church are sung, does it give you the same shivers that it gives the American when he hears the national anthem? Is that where you're at this morning? Well, we're going to finish up here with um, 4.1. Therefore, brethren dearly, beloved, and long for, my joy and my crown... So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Stand fast. Keep working. Keep attaining for that goal. Don't give up. There's more beyond. Press. The mark is worth it. I hope that's where you and I find ourselves this morning. I hope that uh, there's people here that are excited about the kingdom of God. They're pressing into the kingdom of God. And if there's someone here with feeble knees... And a little faint hearted and almost tired of it. Take heart. Find somebody that can help you. And I guarantee you that I know one that can. That's Jesus Christ for sure.